Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a pair of pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all, as well as equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I teach spiritual formation and systematic theology for Wesley Seminary and Indiana Wesleyan University. My guest this week is Andrea Summers. Andrea is the campus pastor and dean of spiritual formation for the college here at IWU. And we are uh, co-workers here at the university uh, since she arrived here just about a year ago. But we are, in fact, old friends. We knew each other way back even in junior high, and we went to college together. And so we're old family friends. And uh, yet this is the first time to have her on the show. And I've been uh, excited to to get a chance to work with her. She's obviously super busy during the school year, but uh, we were able to get a get an episode in for the summer series on Ephesians that we are looking at this year. So our text this week comes from, of course, Ephesians, uh, but it's chapter two, verses eleven through twenty-two. Ephesians two, eleven through twenty-two. Make sure to subscribe if you're not already, so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you enjoy the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice to pass this show on to others so that they may benefit as well. And lastly, if you'd like to support the show as well as receive some additional content, simply go to patreon.com slash fresh text to become one of our patron saints. We thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you will enjoy this conversation with Reverend Dr. Andrea Summers. All right, so we're looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for your son, Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone of the household that you have founded and are continuing to build among us. And we ask that the same spirit that indwells that household and that inspired uh, these words would be at work with us this hour in the conversation between Andrea and I and in the hearts and minds of all those listening in, in their own time and place that we may be empowered and equipped by your spirit, built up, edified, fortified for the ministry of preaching peace, of declaring 
the good news of reconciliation and living that out. We ask that this would take place for the sake of your glory and that we might be made holy by your Holy Spirit. We pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So, Andrea, what uh, what jumps out uh, to you in this text today? What's kind of popping out words, phrases that are interesting to you? Hmm. Uh, so much. I, I think something that I kept coming I, coming back to as I read through this several times was, of course, there's the centrality of the cross in this passage. So much of Paul's writings and the way that he's trying to bring relevance of the cross. So, you know, kind of the implications of what the cross means in the context of corporate community. Peace is a word that shows up that just really jumps out to me talking about this peace that I think is, um, it's it's not this kind of one dimensional peace, right? It's this really robust thing that is only accessible through the cross. And um, yeah, something else that actually, as I read it again, just a moment ago, and then as you were praying, that jumped out to me was, there's this tearing down of walls but then there's this rebuilding, like all at the same time, it's kind of this idea of, I mean, I thought some about the, tear, the tearing down of the walls, and I thought some about the building of this new dwelling place that the Lord inhabits. But this idea that, like, I think this is, I was just in a conversation recently about tearing something down and, and the conversation around this group of people, um, it was like, you know, as a, ministry conversation was, well, you can't just tear something down. Like you have to, you have to replace it. Like you have to put something else in its place. So I just think um, the way that Paul does that so nicely here is I want to keep thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah. Let's start there. I, I, there's three things, which I mean, that might occupy our whole time. Just those three observations, cross, peace, and then the imagery of tearing down and building up. Let's start with that last one though. I, I think 14 is when that imagery first appears, right? Verse 14, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for he himself, okay, I already want to pause there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's referring to Christ, it seems, in the previous verse. For he himself is our peace. Okay, so we already, the peace theme is linked there, right? That's the first time the word peace appears, I think, in this section. Mm-hmm. For he himself is our peace, the one who made the both of us one. So like you said, peace is this very robust concept. It's not just the absence of conflict, but a, mm-hmm. a oneness, right? Yeah. A union. And the mesotokon, I, I assume that's what's translated broken, the wall, the wall of the dividing wall, right? Yeah that he has loosened it, he's broken it down, he's destroyed it, which was a kind of enmity, the the eneminess in his flesh, which turns out in the next verse to be the very, the law, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) In the decree that he kind of de-operates in verse 15, and then making one out of these two, this new man, this new human being, making peace. There's peace again. Wow, mm-hmm. peace is what, four times? Yeah, it's just packed in there again and again. Is it four? Am I missing one? There's another one, 15, and then 17 and 18. Yeah, so that imagery, you're right. I, 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 I totally, I've never seen it till today either, Andrea. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. the language of building up is, I mean, even the verb, it's easy to miss the verb mm-hmm. translated sometimes edify. Like mm-hmm. in chapter four, when it talks about the edification, you can kind of see the word in there like, an edifice is like mm-hmm. an old-fashioned word, right? For something built up, right? So, to build up or to edify is—it's it all has the same root for household here. And the word, mm. the word oik oik o i k is like over and over and over and over all through here. Like so, there's that first reference is household of God that we're made into householders of God. Where is that in verse? Uh, um, it is verse nineteen, I think. Yep, end of verse nineteen. Yes. Members of his household. And I think you can almost get the sense that Paul, as he's dictating this, like once he says that phrase, then he gets, then he starts grabbing verbs that use the same 
Because then the very next verse, what 20 built on, that's mm-hmm. ep oikos, right? It's a, a building a house upon. And there's another, there's two more oiks built together and built upon the foundation. So this building, building, no, there's four more. So all those verbs of building are linked to this language of household, which I don't know, maybe that's unimportant. I'm just Greek geeking, but I think it's connected because there's the, the language is a wall of division versus a household of oneness. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And this, I see like the tearing down and then the building up. I mean, I think the overarching metaphor that Paul uses is the tearing down of the dividing wall, the building up of this household that becomes the dwelling place for God's over 14 and then dwelling place or, you know, the the dwelling in uh, verse 21. But I think just like riding right alongside of that is this tearing down and building up. You mentioned it from, from verse 15, this tearing down, like this idea of two moving to one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. right, And then this movement from hostility to peace. I mean, the the picture that Paul gives, what verse is it when he talks about, it's like, I get this picture of the cross literally coming in and obliterating hostility. You know, uh, I'm picturing the roadrunner and then the coyote like coming in with the TNT and just like the whole thing is just totally, totally destroyed. So yeah, so this movement of tearing down hostility, tearing down two, tearing down the wall. And what you're left with is this movement towards peace, this movement towards one, this one new humanity, this household, this dwelling place. It's really rich. (laughs) Yeah. So a dividing wall corresponds to to Tunis and to the law Mm -hmm. and, and hostility. And then the household and the building it corresponds to oneness, right? And peace. I, I'm, I'm seeing the correlations. I mean, the, it, this is real great radio. I'm trying to draw a chart here, right? But like, you know, like try to kind of see how all the concepts map onto each other because Paul doesn't write. There's often a very clear sort of conceptual scaffolding behind or not behind, but but in what Paul is saying, right? But he doesn't lay it out always in a linear way. You have to kind of sort of construct it sometimes yeah, and then yeah. and then and then tear it all down before you preach a boring sermon that's just a chart. Yeah, but yeah. but it, but for me at least when I'm when I'm studying Paul for myself and teaching and preaching Paul's letters, I often have to almost reconstruct the whole passage piece by piece in almost some either in some kind of chart or some time, some kind of timeline narrative that kind of lets so I can see all of it. But then yeah, then I have to let all of that go because you can't just like that's a yeah. super boring way to preach, but it it helps me get inside it, right? And then yeah, for to, sure. to kind of follow it. And every mind is different, so that might not help you or all of our listeners. But and then the then the parallel then to to, to play that deeper. So then the cross, like you said, is the one that explodes, that blows up, that deactivates the hostility, tears down that wall, mm-hmm. tears down to tunis. And, and this is, I think, like the aha moment I had while you were praying. I don't know. I can't remember what it was you said in your prayer, but you said something that just It like, was just the Holy Spirit inspiring you. That's what sure, it was. Sure. Okay. It yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but um, this idea that, well, of course, of course, the cross doesn't just come in and destroy things. It doesn't just come in right. and obliterate walls and destroy barriers and, you know, like get rid of hostility that there's something that has to replace it. And so it doesn't just destroy barriers, but in its place, it makes a whole new humanity. In its place, it builds this holy temple that um, is laid on the foundation of the apostles and on Christ. Yeah. So yeah, thinking that through then uh, he doesn't, the word does not appear. Of course, the language of death also doesn't appear. It's just the word cross. Yeah, you've you've got to associate that with his death of Christ. But I think 
implicit in the argument here is a reference also to his resurrection because mm-hmm. of the reference to the spirit, which for Paul is always associated with, with the resurrection, right? That's resurrection power that brings life to dead bodies. And this building back up, you almost get a sense of the tearing down as in his death, there's the, the wall is torn down. Mm. And in his resurrection, something is now being built up. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not exactly how he puts it. But I, the reason I sometimes I like charting it out because then I can see, okay, where my chart doesn't fit. How does that help me either correct my assumptions or help me see something in the text I might have yeah. missed? Is well, when Paul it's... says cross, cross never means just the death. Cross always means death and resurrection for Paul. Those always go together because he's the, he's the risen Lord who is the one who manifested himself on the cross. So cross is kind of this union of dying and rising. I would say too, that while it may be, you know, implied in this passage, I think, and maybe I'm getting ahead of us, but that first section of Ephesians two verses one through 10 the death and the resurrection is pretty explicit in that. And I, and I think these two passages kind of mirror each other in a lot of ways. So, Absolutely. So yeah, no, he's the resin and yeah, the ascended It's almost Lord. like, I don't and need even to the building up explicitly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Cause it's already here. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's me trying to, because I'm kind of a resurrection obsessed student. I'm always very careful to make sure I'm not just reading it in where it isn't. So I want to make sure there's at least some language inviting it, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. and cause there is the in one body in verse 16, but then in verse 18, it says in one spirit, mm-hmm. although the versions, my version. Yeah. In one spirit. Yeah. We have access in one spirit to the father. And again, there you get the, the the two and the one in one verse, right? So, so I want to I want to parallel these real quick. Verse fourteen and eighteen. This is what I'm talking about. How like sometimes there's a parallelism in Paul, but it's not always. They're not always. The verses aren't always right next to each other, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but fourteen and eighteen. So fourteen is for he himself is our peace, the one who made the both one and destroyed the dividing wall, the hostility in his flesh. And then verse 16, 16, I need to go to, right? And he reconciled the both in to one body for God through the cross, canceling the enmity in himself. And then 18, because through him, so you get the through again, through the cross and now through him, we have uh, access, the both of us, in one spirit toward the Father. So you get this recurring both mm-hmm. and one, or so, I guess sometimes it's in saying two. It's the word like for amphibian, right? It's am, am, or, or ambidextrous. It's uh, amphotera, right? The both, the, the two of us, uh, the, the pair. So there's the in one body. So there's in the flesh. There's in his cross, and then there's in the spirit, right? Mm-hmm. This kind of movement of, of a kind of fleshly, which I think it's not irrelevant. The opening lines, the opening just dawned on me now, verse 11, uh, you know, the, the, this language of ethnicity at the beginning, you Gentiles or ethne, according to the flesh, right? So it's like, it's our, it's our flesh. It's our sort of ethnic and national and racial identities that are operating as points of division, right? right? Which the law calcifies and reifies and makes even harder to overcome. And then it's by the spirit that a different kind of connection with each other and with God sort of emerges. I think I'm following the passage, but I, if, if you think I'm missing yeah, something, no, or missing think, you, please speak. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm tracking with you 100%. I think this is... Maybe not the only, but I'll just say, I think it's the gravitational pull of this passage is, is that pull from two to one, from hostility to peace. From to become of, one. <laughs> Sorry. Dang it. You play instruments. <laughs> well, I don't know if I can sing like the Spice Girls, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's take a quick break and come back and explore this some more. All right.
And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with Andrea Summers, and we're looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Let's just hear the text again. I'll, I'll read it this time. What, what version were you using at the top of the hour? Uh, I was just using the NIV, yeah. Okay, great. I thought, though, it, it sounded like sounded like NIV. Hmm. Um, I'll get out the – let's try the NASB. Sometimes that has some surprises in it. So, mm-hmm. all right, so here goes. This will be a little old-fashioned and wooden, but it might be might, – might, might see some things. So Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 12, 22. Therefore, remember that formerly – You, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers of the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances that in himself, he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having, well, by it having, yeah, by having it put to death. There it is (laughs) by having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together and growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, two new things jumped out at me. Well, three of them, and I'll just mention them and we'll, we can hang out with them or run in some other direction. But one is apparently 17 is an allusion to scripture. Isaiah 57, 19, the preaching peace to those who are far off and those who are near. He doesn't say as the scripture says, but it's almost a direct quote. Hmm. I just noticed that with a little footnote, you know, good old footnotes helping us out. Yeah. Um, So that's interesting. And of course we know how much Paul loves Isaiah. So, Hmm. um, and second, the second half of Isaiah, especially. So that was one that jumped out at me. Um, another is, what was it? It was toward the end. Well, I forget now. But the, hmm. the third thing was right at the beginning, the, the verb that governs the whole opening string of verses that are all one long sentence is the verb remember. Yeah. He wants them to remember what used to be. And actually, I think that's the only imperative verb in the whole thing. The rest is just talking about what has happened um, and what is what is still happening. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's not saying stop yeah. being a stranger, stop being an alien, start being a fellow citizen, start being a householder of God. Yeah, you know, it's saying you were and now you are these you you were not and now you are. Yeah, the only thing he's commanding them to do is to remember. I don't know how that, that strikes me as odd. I don't know what to do with it, but. Well, the only thought that I have as you share that, which I am interested in going back to that Isaiah kind of um, footnote that you threw in there, but there is this, I like so many times when we're struggling with 
enmity or hostility or when there's division or when there, you know, this is, this is, uh, we want to rush ahead to peace. We want to rush ahead to um, that place where we're all holding hands and singing Kumbaya. And Paul's first and maybe only, as you suggested, imperative there is, no, no, no. We have to like look back before we can look ahead. There's this idea of, and, and I think, um, you know, the tension between Jews and Gentiles is also really, it is the undercurrent in this passage. And so there is this sense of, in order to understand who we are now, so much of Ephesians 2 is about our identity now. Because of the cross, on the other side of the cross, here's who we are. But in order to understand who we are, right, we have to look back and say who we were. And so Paul is encouraging us to do that. Yeah. See, that's... And that's actually really counterintuitive to the way that I think a lot of us might be tempted to apply this text to our lives and preach on it. I think it would be, the temptation would be to, to say like, okay, so we need to do something to tear down walls. We need to do things to be, be reconciled. And I'm not, I'm not invalidating those actions, but I am questioning, just like you said, you know, rushing to that, assigning ourselves an activity mm. that maybe actually will be quite futile when it's done without an awareness of what has already been accomplished mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. Christ. Like what is already true. So there's a, there's a double remembering, right? There's the explicit re- command to remember, to remember the division. But then in the course of his narration, there's also a remembering because you remember the division, not as an end in itself, but as in order to remember and celebrate be a, be mindful of be aware of hmm. um, yeah. the great reconciliation that has been achieved already, not through our good works of being nicer people. Cause I'm sure Paul's writing to people who maybe aren't living up to this entirely. Right. Sure. So, I mean, yeah. given what we know of his, I mean, Ephesians doesn't have a lot of specific details. There's good reason to believe it was some kind of circular letter since there are some ancient manuscripts that don't even have to the Ephesians on the first hmm. page. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it feels a little more generic, this letter, it's probably because it is a little bit more generic, but anyway, I, but that, that's relevant to mention though, because then he might be speaking in lofty terms about mm-hmm. what, what is the case, <laughs> uh, from the perspective of the gospel. And of course, implicitly he's saying, uh, you know, Hey, maybe let's live up to that a little bit, but, um, well, I'm wondering too. Super important to be remembering, remember past division, remember how that division has been defeated finally in Christ, not by us, and then notice the tension and notice if the divisions are still persisting, okay, something needs to change, right? That's all implied, but it's not stated. Mm-hmm. It's not the leading theme. Like you said, don't rush to that. Mm-hmm. Remember, remember the story, remember who you were mm-hmm. so that you can live into who you are. Yeah. Go ahead. I think I cut you off. No, no, no. I was interrupting you. So yeah, I just get excited sometimes, but um, yeah, this idea of remembering, I actually think, because I, I have, you know, the whole chapter in front of me, I almost think that Paul is giving us a framework that he repeats twice here. I'm just, you know, yes, there's do it. So yeah, zoom so, out. That's why I yeah, say yeah. second segment, go go wherever you want. We can preach right. the whole book of Ephesians now if you want. Okay, so we see a okay, so we see a progression in eleven yeah. through twenty-two. He starts out saying, We need you to remember, remember who you were. And then there's that turn in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away are now brought near by the blood of Christ. So all of a sudden, you know, it's here's who you were, then there's this cataclysmic event mm-hmm. that changes everything. And he really kind of unpacks that all the way 13 through, I would say all 18. the way through verse 18. Yeah. For yep. through him. And then in 19, we get 19 a therefore, a double therefore. Yep. So then, yep. yep. He's saying, and so now here's how we live on the other side of that. We, we remember who we were. We remember the work of the cross and the authority and power it has in our lives. And now here's where we live. If you, if you lay that same progression or that template, on to verses one through 10. Yep. It maps right on. Yep. It maps right on. 
yep. you've got, he's asking them to, he doesn't use Good the word remember, but he's still saying, hey, here's who you were. You were dead in you your were sins. dead in your chins. Yep. Um, you were, you know, you, you belong to the world, the ruler, the kingdom of the air. And then in verse four, but because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy. There it is again, alive with Christ, even though you were dead with your sin. Yes. Uh, verse six, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly. So you've got, so you've got the, remember who you were, remember that salvific act of Christ, the death and resurrection. And then I still feel like Paul is, he's trying to get at the relevance of the cross. And so there's hmm. the, there's maybe Paul is not that it's the only implication, but he's underscoring the personal implications of the cross. And then in verses 11 through 22, he's underscoring the corporate implications of the cross. Like, you know, remember who you used to be, you were dead in sin. The cross, you know, intersected that sin. And now you are alive in Christ. You are seated in the heavenlies. You are, you know, all these things. And then in the second round of that same progression, it's you were far from God. You were, you know, you were Gentiles by birth. You were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship. And then, you know, the cross enters in, the dividing wall comes down. And then he uses this poetic language in both cases. That last section, verses seven through nine, it's just this beautiful, you know, for we are God's handiwork, creating Christ Jesus yes. to do works, prepared. Just this beautiful kind of flowery language. And then you see that same kind of imagery and poetic language coming into play in that last section of verse, verses 19 through 22. Paul's trying to give us an imagination for right. who we are, our identity, not just our personal identity in Christ on the other side of the cross, but actually our corporate identity. This is who we are. Yeah, I dig that. I mean, the and and it's it's really key that the the positive poetic description of our present tense identity that appears at the end of each of these sections is, like you say, trying to loosen up our imagination to see who we are and there and then to live accordingly, but not framed as a a set of instructions, but more as an inspiration to a way a new way of life. Let me let me play with your your from the personal to the corporate idea. I wouldn't rule it out because the description of the problem in the first couple verses of chapter two are at least moral stuff, right? Well, it's cosmic language of the powers of of the prince of this world, and then formally living in lusts and desires and being children of wrath. I think the personal corporate works. One other twist I want to throw on it is... In verse two, there's just the generic you audience. So there's the this moral language of following the desires of the flesh and all this. And verse three sounds like kind of standard way that Jews talk about Gentiles. <laughs> like this is, you know, used to be sinners. And, and there's the generic you in verse one. But in 11, he specifies, I'm talking to you Gentiles. Although these may have, given what he's talking about here, there might be some kind of, there's probably a mixed congregation, or at the very least, apostles like himself. There are key leaders that are of Jewish uh, heritage uh, that are a core part of the community, even if they're not, um, however, whatever the percentages are in in Ephesus or wherever else this letter went to. And it suddenly occurred to me, and I never saw this until now, Andrea, that the parallelism of the first and second half of chapter two actually makes me think of the the parallelism of chapter one and two of Romans, where like chapter one is like, Mm. yeah, God is punishing Gentiles for all their sin. And it's like all the standard list of evil things that Jews love to say pagans do. And then he turns the knife and says, but now it's, but there it's directed to Gentiles to the Jews saying, ah, but aren't you also not living up to the law? Is your conscience in fact clear? Here you kind of have a sort of inverse version of that where it's like, okay, yeah. And so this maps onto your personal corporate, but I think there's a, there's a corporate politics. There's a, there's a racial tension actually in the whole chapter. It's not, it's only explicit in the second half, but it might be the rhetorical strategy of the whole chapter to say, well, yeah, 
sure, all of us, Jew, Gentile, whatever, we, we all fail before God. We're all sinners and we've been saved by grace. Thanks be to God. Yay. Old news if you've been listening to Paul, right? This is like standard Paul, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then he's like, and then the, then the twist in verse 11 is to kind of say, but it's not just, like you said, that, that moral transformation, but also mm. this ethical transformation. And I bring up, it's instead of, I, I want to, sorry if I'm tweaking you too much here, but like, no, no, instead I'm of a shift from personal to corporate, I'm wondering if there's a shift alongside that or underneath that from morality to ethics. I know, I know we use those terms interchangeably, mm-hmm. but actually like, strictly speaking, like morality is talking about mores, standards, ways of living, whereas ethics, there's the word ethic and the word ethnic, right? Or or ethos are all the same root word in, in Greek. And that's not an accident. That's not an etymological coincidence because ethics is about an ethos, a community way of living, a way of seeing ourselves, right? And the practices that are attendant to that. And so he wants them to see not only a moral transformation taking place, mm. but also an ethical transformation and ethical, and therefore it's affecting ethnic identity mm. and ethnic division. I don't know how that rings with you or if no, I just no, kind of contradicted you too sharply there. but <laughs> No, I, I actually love it. Okay. So let me just run with that for a second. I think it might be possible that we tend to overemphasize or or maybe just emphasize anyway the moral difference that the cross makes and perhaps underemphasize the ethical difference that the cross makes in in our lives because like maybe that is the twist that Paul's getting at here like uh you know I, I think it it's really common language in the church to think about well what happens when we don't live in the power of the cross when it comes to to sin when it comes to morality, that sort of thing. Like we, we get that, right? We can think of Christians. We can think of our own selves at, at maybe points in our life where we've been um, hunkered down by sin. And even though all of the power and authority and freedom is available to us on the other side of the cross, we're not living in the freedom of it entirely, right? Like that's something that I think we get and we think about. What I think sometimes we forget about is that we're not living into the power of the cross to destroy those dividing walls. We're not living into the power of the cross to give us that kind of ethical transformation that means that we are uh, a new humanity, you know, the two becoming one, as we were talking about earlier. Uh, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm making a big jump there, but I just, I think of, um, you know, C.S. Lewis's his oft quoted uh, it's from the weight of glory where he talks about we're we, like, we're half-hearted creatures that we fool around with stuff like drinking and sex and stuff like that. When infinite joy is offered to us, right? It's something, and he gives the analogy of a kid playing around in the mud and on the other side of this, the hill or whatever is like a holiday at the sea is available to them, but they're, they're content because all they know is living in the slums and playing with mud. And I wonder if sometimes this is what we do. Like we're just content to live with the kind of power that the cross has to destroy the sin, uh, the moral, you know, the moral difference that the cross can make in verses one through 10. And we don't ever get far enough. And Paul's just like pulling the, you know, pulling the church for these, like, you get this, maybe I'm going to pull you one step further. Actually, the cross has the power to destroy the divisions, has the power to destroy the hostility has the power to destroy the enmity. Yeah. Why stop short at just this freedom, which is so huge, um, a freedom from these moral failings and to be transformed by the spirit into freely offering good works, not out of obligation, but out of joy and gratitude for the grace we've been given why stop short there? Why not also notice, oh my goodness, this cross is, if the, if the law has been fulfilled in Christ so that we are freed from its condemnation and burden, well, it's that same exact law that justified uh, the Jew-Gentile uh, separation. And so, why not also live into the joy of that peace, 
right? I mean, it's, it's, it's offering that there's a fullness of life here. It's not just a, boy, you're not, you're not reconciled with someone who's different than you. It's not just one more ethical obligation. It's actually a whole new ethos. It's a whole life that we're not, we're not savoring the benefits of if we uh, ignore it. Hmm. That's really good. Well, let's take a quick break and come back and explore some sermon starters. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Andrea Summers, and we are looking at Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. We did a little glance in the first half of the chapter, and that's totally fine and great. In fact, that first half was one of the readings, one of the epistle readings back in in Epiphany, back in January. And so it's not included in the series this summer that we're going through Ephesians. So it's like totally would be you're not stepping on some somebody mm-hmm. else's episode or something, Andrea, for okay, us to like, if you need to use the whole chapter to go, to go where we need to go. But yeah, yeah let's explore some sermon starters. If you were getting called on to, to mm. preach this sermon, how, how would, where would you get started? What would be your angle or your hunch? What, where, which way are you feeling nudged? Obviously we've, we've have the topics and the themes are all laid out, but what mm-hmm. would be your angle, your, your focus to, to, to communicate that to others? Hmm. I think the question that keeps coming to mind, I don't know if this is where I would start, but maybe it's where I would stop along the way or end <laughs> is um, what, what are the dividing walls today? I mean, we didn't really talk yeah. that much about the idea of peace. Uh, I think we could, like we could probably spend another 30 minutes just talking about the idea of peace in this passage. Um, I, th- I think that um, there is the, the hostility or the enmity that Paul keeps referring to, and then he keeps counteracting it with this idea of peace through the cross. Like I, there were probably was very, were very specific things that he was talking to mm-hmm. talking. About. We, we, we know actually just when he talks about, you know, the, the difference between Jews and Gentiles, well, that's, that's probably not our greatest dividing wall in the church today is the difference between Jews and Gentiles, but. But I bet it wouldn't take but a minute for us to think of some more, right? What it's almost like what isn't a dividing wall in the church today, right? Like that would be the easier question. Um, But uh, goodness, I think this passage, if we allow it to, it actually impacts a much broader set of human relationships than we could even imagine. Um, So maybe the wall is different. Than it was that Paul, you know, than Paul's audience, but the hostility that builds that wall is probably still exactly the same. It's made of the same stuff, and it is still um, destroyed in the same way. I think too that picture to me. I don't know how. I mean, you'd have to get it to a place where you could communicate it in a way that wasn't so kind of like it. It, it would. That would be much more tangible if you could really grab their hands around it. But for me, I'm very captured by the idea that the very place where that wall is, is the exact location for the new structure that has to yeah. be yeah. Right. So it's, it's, um, it goes back to that destroying and rebuilding thing that we were talking about at the beginning, John, but I think that has tremendous application with, you know, when we look at our own hearts, when we look at our own lives, when we look at the relationships around us, the place where we feel, where we're, we're feeling building resentment, the places where we're feeling opposition, the places where we're feeling a lack of empathy, that is the exact location where God wants to come in with the power of the cross and destroy that wall and in its place build a holy temple. And that holy temple is not just made up of me by myself, right? This is a, a corporate thing that that's the very location that we let people we have to let people into that place that Christ is the chief cornerstone. I don't know. I'm just captured by that idea, but it, it would need to be worked out a little more, I think. Yeah, but you're, I mean, the, the text of course supports that insight of the exact location, right? Because by calling Christ the chief cornerstone, mm. which then is an allusion to that great Psalm that's also quoted in Acts and in the Gospels by Jesus himself 
of the 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 stone that the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. Mm-hmm. It's got a kind of death and resurrection imagery, right? Of rejection and then election by God. So that illusion having already said that it's through the cross that this peace is achieved, right? So so the very cross that the very cross of Christ that tears down the wall almost is like then becomes one of those torn down walls. One of the stones from that wall Mm. is turned around and builds now a new house. Mm. That's the imagery almost. And, and that's not irrelevant because it's not that Christ is a generic human being. He is a Jew. He not just was, is risen. He is, I prefer translating Christ often as Messiah, just to remind us, this is the Jewish Messiah, right? Mm. Um, he preached peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. Paul never denies that the Jews are nearer to God. <laughs> so, so, um, which would be my one little, uh, kind of like any sermon on this would be my one little exhortation to all our listeners would be that if, if insofar as we may and must apply this text to the estrangement and alienations and divisions of our own time that no matter what we don't ever this is my view but i'll push it hard to make the point you can push back if you don't agree but uh that we don't ever identify one side of those divisions um, among us gentile christians as the jewish partner in that relationship so in other words like say the the color line in america between white and black Christians, right? Mm-hmm. If white folk like you and me, Andrea, apply this text by thinking of ourselves as the Jews mm. who need to let down our barriers to welcome in the Gentiles, the other, the far, namely persons of color, we've already reinstantiated a whole colonial imagination yeah. in ourselves. Yeah, because there actually is only one ethnic difference that is that that was uh, uh, divinely ordained, and that's the difference between Jews and Gentiles. It's a divinely ordained one that was then canceled by the death of Christ, but it was divinely ordained. the The, the decrees of the law here are not something that the Jews made up. That this is God's revelation right. of Himself in His law. So this is God's law. That that yeah. so that distinction was a legitimate distinction which was then, but, but limited and made occasion for sin, couldn't fulfill its own intention. It was only a promise. Ultimately, the intention was the union of all nations. So whenever there's divisions between Gentile Christians, we always want to think of that as one step removed. And that's hard to do in preaching because it's just so much easier to say, hey, mm-hmm. we shouldn't be like those naughty Jews. Um, we need to be more welcoming but yeah. we're simultaneously being like anti-Semitic and like looking down and playing ourselves as Israel when we too are strangers. I mean, the whole point of the passage is, hey, you, even you, rich white Christian are alienated stranger guest, yeah. right? Even well, you are not a part I, of this if it wasn't for the cross of Christ. Yes. So you're right. I think we get into, we can get into a lot of trouble when we start seeing ourselves too closely in in that story. But I think I think what this says though about divisions and what this says about two becoming one and becoming a whole new like you know it, it's not like the cross of Christ allowed Jews to become Gentiles or Gentiles to Bingo. become Jews, right? Yes. Instead, yes. they became a whole new. They became he tells us who we are. We are seated in the heavenlies. We are God's handiwork. We are um, this holy temple. We are all these brand new things. And so it's really, I think another thing that is important to note is like, this is the first time, well, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I would suggest this is maybe the first time in human history that uh, Jews and Gentiles are expected to do this radical thing. They're supposed to worship together. And I'm sure there have been instances where, um, you know, a Gentile was let in on a worship service in the past, but in this, in, in this idea of no, like the division is gone. You are, um, you're to do this brand new thing that you have never had to do before. And you never imagined you would ever do. 
Like, I think there's some implications for that for us today to say. Yeah, I think that's spot on because it's not, it's actually not inclusion and assimilation of Gentile into Jewry, right? It's actually a kind of a new kind of alienation of them all from what they're used to into this new third thing, right? That's beyond their usual ways of thinking. I completely agree with that. And I think it does apply to our own divisions, um, but not because we are like Jews and those who aren't like us are like Gentiles. It's that we're all Gentiles. And, and that's why I love this passage is remember that you were alienated, you were strangers. So it's as a stranger that I remember to not turn around and keep others estranged from me, right? Because mm-hmm. my identity is one who was strange and has been now made a member of the household. Yeah. But yeah, it's the household of God, not the not the commonwealth of Israel. That yeah. we've been That's in. right. That's right. Yeah. And don't you think that, goodness, if w- whatever that looks like today, that this kind of peacemaking work of destroying barriers, of building, of building dwelling places where barriers used to exist. I feel like this is one of the greatest witnesses to the world that we could ever have. That's, that's where my imagination just lights up a little bit is to go, man, if we can, if we can continue figuring this is a timely message for the church today. This idea of becoming a new, a new people, a new family, a new humanity. And, yeah, what kind of witness would that be? Rather than, hey, you, can you climb over that wall and come over yes. here and be just yeah. like me? Right, right, uh, right. Or how dare you tell me that I need to climb over the wall and come over to where you're at? Oh, why can't we just like stand on either side of our walls and just keep talking to each other like this? Maybe we could even reach across the wall and hold hands. Like, no, no, no. Those are all just, they stop so short of the imagination for this holy temple, this holy dwelling place. And this place where the wall is destroyed, like this is the place where God dwells. I want to be where God dwells. So, Yeah, that's really good. I, this is, I mean, maybe this is too silly, but just thinking about imagery, at least in modern times, visually how powerful the image of the Berlin Wall, which, you know, came down when we were, preteens, you and I, Andrea, but uh, like, it'd be fun to just do a little research and try to find something that's like literally built right where the wall used to be. Do you know what I mean? Um, And some things that even incorporate old parts of the wall into there, right. As a kind of memory of a division. Mm. I'm just thinking of some imagery that could be, you know, screenshots that could be thrown into a teaching just to kind of visualize some of the power. And another thing is as a way into the text, these these three verbs in verse, well, they're not all verbs, but in verse 12 could be a great place to start. Just remember, remember a time when you felt separated, when you felt alienated, when you felt estranged, a stranger, you know? Mm. That third one, stranger, is, is xenoi, like the root for xenophobia. But just those terms, separation, alienation, and estrangement, those are powerful, evocative terms. And everyone has a memory, everyone from the most privileged person in a space to the person who in a church community is feeling alienated right there and then in that church. Everyone, that whole spectrum of experiences can think of a time when they had that feeling Mm -hmm. and to invite people to remember that. And to tap into that feeling a little bit as an entry point into, and then to remember a time when you felt at home, when you felt at peace, when you felt safe, right? When you felt one with those around you, you know, and to just sing the praises of Christ's work that moves us from one to the other. And then to ask those tough questions about, okay, what are some, again, at a corporate, structural, even societal level, what are the dividing walls in place that are creating estrangement? You know, 
for others that even maybe I'm not paying attention to, right? Because you don't have to feel it for it to be true, right? Because then you could actually mention, just so you know, most Gentiles weren't walking around saying, I feel so estranged from the Commonwealth of Israel. Like they could care less, right? right? Like these are actually objective facts, not feelings of most Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could start with that per- very personal experience to enter into it, but then to recognize that the most destructive forms of alienation we're often not even aware of. We're not even aware of how we're perpetuating them. So to bring some of those to light and maybe to identify a few, both in our society and even specific things locally, hmm. to the community. Yeah, I'm with you. I think that'll be really, really powerful. It's a sermon. I, I'm okay. not sure. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm equipped to preach it, but I sure would like to hear it. <laughs> That's so good. I'd like to hear you preach it. Will you preach yeah. this this fall at the chapel? And I'll come here. Yeah. We'll see. Actually, we'll see. I'm actually, I'm looking at doing um, the book of Ephesians in the fall or no, in the spring rather, but but let me offer just one as, as you uh, were talking about the Berlin wall, my mind went to a story that um, I heard years ago, but there's a, there's a really iconic picture. You've probably seen it. There was a photographer that was there in those very first moments when people had heard they they started climbing that wall. They'd heard that, you know, November 9th, 1989. Yeah. Yeah. So there's this iconic picture. You probably search the internet and find it. But anyway, this wall where like people knew people who had been shot, uh, trying to climb it and had been this impenetrable thing. And also, but, but no one could get over that wall by themselves. So the, the picture, if I'm remembering it right, there's a graffiti on the wall and it shows those first climbers being hoisted up by people behind them. And then those first climbers like reached, oh, reached down and pulled people up behind them. Like, this is this idea, like you couldn't actually yes. get over the wall by yourself. So um, I think it kind of points to that. Uh, we would love to make whatever wall destroying power the cross has in our life be uh, a solitary affair. Like that's, Ah, yes. And right. Oh, good. By very definition, you can't get over the wall by yourself. You can't destroy the wall by yourself. You certainly can't be built into a holy temple all by yourself with Christ. Oh, that's really good. So it really has to be, it has to be a corporate endeavor. Oh my goodness. That's awesome, Andrea. Yeah, I mean, and he uses the word reconciliation here. And right, what's mm-hmm. the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation? Well, I can forgive you whether you accept that my forgiveness or not, right? Mm-hmm. But I can't be reconciled with you without you cooperating with me in that reconciliation, right? Reconciliation right. is. I love it. So, and you can even think of that Berlin Wall incident where it was kind of like there was a an announcement. And there was actually some confusion around the exact meaning, but it was a legal change about, about travel across the wall. And so when that law was changed and deactivated, in some ways, that's in, in this particular parable, right? That's mm-hmm. the cross of Christ has already, mm. you know, made the wall irrelevant. Right. And yet if we're not cooperating you know, to start to move back and forth over it and knock it, knock, knock down what remains. Yeah. I mean, imagine if they just declared that you can travel freely across the wall and everybody's like, yeah, okay. Uh, but I'm not gonna, right. And everyone just like, you know, there had to be that, that two-sided effort to bring the wall down. I like that. That's really powerful. That's yeah. really good. Well, yeah. thank you, Andrea, yeah. so much for this hour. I appreciate it a ton. I'm sure our listeners yeah. do too. That's As always, I'll, I love it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks to our listeners. Of course, as always, thanks to Todd and Eric for their production work. Can't imagine doing it without you. Uh, thanks uh, to all our listeners for getting the word out, especially our patron saints who support the show. If you're interested in becoming a supporter of the show, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text to find ways that you can support the show and get some extra content. I, uh, I have a day job. I don't see a cent of that. That just goes to the production team behind the scenes that do all the hard work. I just get to geek out with my friends about the Bible. So all the technical stuff is, I don't even know how to do any of that. Somebody else does that. That's Todd and Eric, and I'm so appreciative of them. So uh, yeah, so thanks so much, uh, Andrea and everybody. And as always, we say, have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. <laughs>